Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William, and I'm here with Samantha, and we have a couple special guests with us today, Erica and Audrey, two of our great co-workers at TCFV. Today, we are going to be talking about sexual respect in the context of battering intervention and prevention programming. Before we get started, just a reminder to take care of yourself as we progress through this episode. We'll be talking about sexual respect that might involve using some examples of things that facilitators hear sometimes in BIP groups that also might involve talking about abusive patterns, abusive behaviors. So again, please take care of yourself, pause the episode if you need to, and join us back whenever you're ready. Like I said, today we have a few folks with us. Hi, Samantha. It is good to see you or hear from you. (laughs) Both. Yeah. (laughs) And Erica, welcome back to the podcast. You have been on before. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, William. And new to the podcast, not so new to TCFV anymore, but new to the podcast is Audrey. Welcome. Welcome. We always start when someone first has their debut on the podcast with a quick intro of them. So Audrey, could you tell the people a little bit about you, a little bit how you got involved in this movement? Okay. Hi, everyone. Audrey Fernandez here. So a little bit about my background, since we're on the the podcast relating to sexual respect and BIP, I do come from the battering intervention world, the BIP world. And so I was previously a facilitator in a program here in Corpus Christi. And so I I did male to female intimate partner groups for about maybe about five years, I would say. I was also a community educator there for about six months. And then I am now here. So really happy to be here. Yeah. And we're happy to have you. I think that it's important for folks who have worked in BIP spaces to be a part of conversations. Often we have this division of direct service and BIP and prevention. And so bringing all these conversations together is going to be really important. And we always start off with an icebreaker. So given that it is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is April, we were struggling to come up with a topical icebreaker that would be appropriate. And so I believe it was Samantha thought of the the adage, April showers bring May flowers. So our icebreaker today is going to be in the theme of April showers. What is your favorite thing to do on a rainy day? I can start us off and then pass it around. I love a rainy day. Like I, and like the stormier, the better. I like, I love a storm. I'm not trying to like mess with tornadoes or anything, but like a thunderstorm, I'm all about it. I really just like to to like veg out and when it was Christmas and there was like a Christmas tree, like a Christmas tree, a storm, like just chilling on like the couch would be great in lieu of a Christmas tree, just some like low lighting or no lighting if there's enough lightning and just having some like warm food or hot chocolate watching TV while it's storming. That's my, that's my vibe. So I'll pass it to Audrey if you would. Tell us what you like to do on a rainy day. Sure. Okay. So I'm a little bit different when it comes to a rainy day. I am still always open to driving to see the beach. And my family is always telling me, Audrey, what are you doing out there? It's raining. Isn't the beach supposed to be like when it's hot and sunny? And I'm like, no, I still love going out there and sitting there. I might not be able to drive down the water on the sand, but I still love to just sit there and listen and watch. And yeah, I'm the only one out there, by the way, but uh, (laughs) I still love it. But that's my like ideal rainy day. Of course, if it's storming and the roads are a little slippery or it's very, very cold, icy, I won't go out there, but I'll stay home and and take naps in my comfy bed. But yeah, that's my that's really cool. I, yeah. I that's definitely not what I would have expected someone to say. So that's I like that a lot. What about you, Erica? Me, when it's raining out, I like to stay in. Uh, opposite of Audrey, <laughs> I stay put. I typically put on some vinyls. I don't know. There's something about playing vinyls and listening to the rain that is very comforting. And so 
I tend to stick to home, listen to music. That seems like a very cool vibe with your vinyls on. And like, I like that a lot. And Way cooler than me. <laughs> I feel like that's on Erica's last episode. We talked about how cool she was. And I'm like, yeah, just want to hang out. Like these two over here, like going out into nature and being like, I'm going to confront the storm and like, I'm going to listen to vinyls and I'm going to, I'm just like, I want, I don't want to leave the house. Like, <laughs> yeah. My thing is I same William, like I enjoy rain especially if it can, if I can time it to where it's like right at my bedtime when I'm going to bed, oh, that's going to be the best sleep. But if it's like during the day and yesterday, for example, yesterday was a rainy day for us and I didn't realize, I don't know, I guess I didn't hear it. I was too busy getting my daughter ready for school. And we were actually for the first time in a very long time going to be early and I opened the door and it is just pouring rain and immediately I was like, no, <laughs> immediately I don't want to do this. <laughs> I had to take her to school. So that's like a not fun time for me is when I have to like, when I have obligations and it's rainy. Because for me, rainy day is all about like, I want a London fog. I want to be on my couch with like the softest, comfiest blanket that I own I want to be watching a movie, reading a book, having snacks. That's ideal for me. Even take, yeah, taking a nap, which has not been on the <laughs> table for me for a while with a toddler, but would love to take a nap. So all the relaxing things. In reality, what it is, though, is like, how can I run my toddler around inside to get enough energy out of her so that she will sleep at night <laughs> so it's not those things for me but I can dream and I can hope <laughs> also just the mention of a London fog oh, one of the best drinks right um, people may not know what it is but oh well they should go listen endorsement what is that, <gasps> what is that? it's the first? so good okay if you picture a gray rainy day and you think about the smells and tastes of what that would be. It's a London fog. Like that ah. translates to. So it's a hot tea drink. And it's tea. What kind of tea? It's like English breakfast? It's usually Earl Grey. Is, Earl Grey. Is the like most typical. But you can make it with any like, yeah. tea. So Earl Grey with vanilla and steamed milk. I think is what the combo is. And it is so comforting, so warm and cozy. It's just like the perfect cozy drink to me. And now I really want one. <laughs> like I'm going to be stuck on that for like a really long time until I get one. It's just so good. Yeah. Highly I recommend. Don't, I don't drink coffee. So like when people are like, let's go get coffee. I'm like, okay. But that's usually my go-to coffee shop drink is, is, an, is a London yeah. fog. William and I have had heated debates about the proper way to enjoy a London fog because he seems to think it's fine to have an iced London fog. And to me, that negates the whole warm and coziness of a London fog. But that Listen. is also an option, apparently, for some folks out you there. You <laughs> can get it iced. I'm not saying you have to. I just had a hot one the other day. But, but you can get it iced just like you get iced coffee. Like, you can Try sure. to be trendy, like all the little, little people with their little iced coffees that they swirl sure. around. You can do that. I think it's wrong, but it's fine. I'm not going to yuck somebody else's yum. But yeah, no, it's delicious. Highly recommend if you haven't tried it. So yeah, so <laughs> now that we have thoroughly discussed my favorite tea beverage today, like William said, we're talking about sexual respect and specifically in the context of BIPs, Better Intervention and Prevention Programs, we are super lucky to be having this conversation with Eric and Audrey because both of them have experience as facilitators of BIP groups where they have just been leaders in the field. And I just, we can learn so much from them and their insights from their work with BIPs. So as a reminder, for folks, we have an episode about BIPs that Erica was kind enough to join us on. And so if you are interested in learning more or if you missed that episode and want to hear more about 
exactly what BIPs do, please go back and listen. It's a great episode that details the logistics of what BIPs are. But as just a brief recap for our conversation today, BIPs are psychoeducational groups that are facilitated by one or two facilitators who have a conversation with the participants about healthy behaviors versus harmful, abusive, coercive, controlling behaviors. A lot of folks are referred to these programs by programs like CPS, probation, but there are voluntary groups that exist. But participants go through several weeks worth of content with their facilitators. And then upon graduation, the hope is that they have learned a new skill set and learned a new belief system. So props to all the BIP facilitators out there doing great work. So that's just a brief recap of what BIP is. And like I said, if you want to learn more, we have a previous episode, please feel free to check that out. So yeah, so now I just want to kind of open it up, especially since both Erica, you and Audrey have experience in BIP groups and have led these conversations and actually had these conversations with BIP participants. So I kind of want to just lay some basic groundwork. Why is it important to include sexual respect within the BIP context? So why why should we even be talking to BIP participants about something like sexual respect? Like typically when people think of domestic violence, they automatically think about the physical piece of it, right? When we're looking at that power control wheel, that bold band on the surrounding the wheel, it says sexual and physical violence. So yeah, so there's a lot of different aspects to coercive and controlling behavior within a relationship is what I'm hearing. And sexual coercion and sexual abuse can be part of that abusive dynamic within that relationship. And so it sounds like that's maybe why it's an important component of a BIP curriculum and having these conversations with BIP participants. Yes, I would add, yes, that it is very important because like Audrey mentioned earlier, a lot of times you hear domestic violence and with our media, you know, whether it's news or movies or entertainment, you sort of pair that terminology to physical abuse all the time. And I think it's it's sort of hidden, the sexual violence, because no one really tends to think about that component or even know what coercion means. In particular, some of the participants that come through our groups don't really truly understand what the coercion means either. So it is an important topic. It's very important to address in BIP. And uh, one of the curriculums dedicates almost four weeks of time to really get into the weeds with that conversation. That's great. Four weeks is is a good chunk of time. And I do want to put like a little disclaimer out there for folks listening that I don't think this is necessarily a unique situation to BIP, right? So we're having this particular conversation about sexual respect within the context of BIP groups. But also, I think there's a lot of folks out there who maybe engage in some coercive or manipulative sexual behavior. And maybe it's just not something that's illegal or something that they've gotten caught for. Or maybe it's just something that they feel entitled to, or, you know, it just hasn't risen to this level of being referred to this particular, like a BIP group. And so I just kind of wanted to put that out there that I don't think sexual coercive behavior is unique to BIP participants, but because there's already these abusive dynamics in their relationship that have been confirmed, it's something that we want to definitely address because chances are, because it's an issue in the general population also, we want to make sure that we're also addressing it with this particular group. So just a disclaimer that we're not ignoring that this is something that is pretty prevalent in our society. And I imagine that that is one of the challenges that you come up against, Audrey and Erica, as you're facilitating a BIP group about sexual respect. I imagine that 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 is like that, well, everybody does this or all men think like this or those type of like um, normalized perspectives on sexual disrespect is one of the big pieces of or the big hurdles you have to overcome when facilitating a group on this conversation. 
Oh, yeah, for sure, William, because we've had individuals in group who do say that, you know, this is normal where I come from, or we've always behaved like this. Times are changing because back in the day, things like that will come up. But if you listen to them long enough in their stories, then they start to tell you how they're worried about their female intimate partner cheating because of the same groundwork they laid as normal earlier. And so those give you opportunity to sort of ask questions to point out the contradictions and then also challenge them. How can you do better for men in general? How can you do do better to, to set a new standard and then also for your sons, for your daughters? So, yeah, that's a good point to bring up. How I mean, I can imagine this could be a sensitive, tricky subject to discuss within a room full of any anybody, <laughs> but particularly, right, probably a group of folks who are maybe against or not having as easy of a time understanding some of the or buying into, right, the idea of sexual respect. So can you kind of walk me through what kind of topics do you even talk about? Like, how do you even have just the actual conversation? Because we can sit here and say, oh, you know, there's a four-week, five-week chunk of this curriculum where we're talking about sexual respect, right? But what does that actually mean when you're facilitating a group, week five, week four, whatever? What kind of topics are y'all talking about? I think that when BIT participants come through for an intake, during that orientation and assessment, we do talk to them about the themes that we're going to touch on in the program. And so one of which is the sexual respect theme. So it's kind of like just getting them ready to know what to expect, what we expect for them to share in group or be open to. And then so when it comes to that week and or theme, then it's really important for one, that rapport it, it begins with the facilitator the dynamic of the group, it really depends on, I used to do maybe four to six different groups per week. And just every group would be different when it came to that sexual respect theme. So some groups, we would need to first start off with just simply the basic terminology of what is consent, or what is coercion, or what is your definition of what sexuality is. And starting from there, Versus in other groups, depending on their dynamic and accountability level, then as a facilitator, deciding on like how much more we can dive into their thinking and beliefs behind of the behaviors that they would use against an intimate partner. But typically, week one would be with uh, just simple definitions, just to start and also setting the tone at the beginning of group and when it comes, there's going to be a lot of terminology that we're going to go over. Some things that we talk about may be uncomfortable. You may feel the need to want to laugh or crack a joke. Just know that we're here to put in our work in BIP and to help create change within yourselves and go from there. I imagine that that, that one of those last things that you mentioned about like laughing or being in a BIP group might be just base level uncomfortable for some folks. And so some people react to their discomfort through laughter. But right. then you throw in conversations where you're using like sexual terms, uh, anatomical terms. Yes. And I think a lot of our culture still has this like sex is taboo or you can't say this word without a giggle. And so like as a right. facilitator, how do you, I don't want to say check, but I mean, how do you like check that behavior? Like, is it just like a, why are you laughing kind of moment or do you no. approach it differently? Yeah. No, I think it's telling them, say you do end up feeling uncomfortable and you do laugh, you know, try and think about like, where is that coming from within you? What is it that you're thinking about yourself or just looking into to yourself? Why do you feel uncomfortable talking about that? And some of the part of the rules that we had when it came to like group rules is using proper terms. But when it came to them sharing their experience, we were open for them to share specific details on what they would say or do to their partner, even if it is saying or sharing in group like, yes, I did call her a slut or I did call her a whore. So we would open for them to share that because that's their experience. And I imagine that that brings some like realness to the group on like, 
one accountability, which is one of the big things that this is all about, but also relatability in the group. I think having participants use the, their their actual language, I would imagine would they would be less able to like hide in the group um, as far as thinking, oh, well, they did something worse than me or so I like I shouldn't be here, right? It's accountability for not only the individual, but for the whole group to like sit with the ways that in many of these groups, though, the ways that like male partners treat female partners. Yeah. And William, I would jump in just to mention what you're saying, that it does create some sort of familiarity between them because they're all using this language and and it does come up and it wasn't uncommon for participants to quote themselves saying that they had used derogatory language meant to degrade that that was not uncommon at all but what leveled you know were the recipes used to dish out that violence in particular sexual violence right you had one participant who maybe would inappropriately grope or consistently harass uh, their partner about cheating while you're sitting next to someone who maybe committed an actual sexual assault. So that would vary. But one thing as a facilitator to point out is that there is that common belief. We all called our partners derogatory names and we all believe that about them. So we're working on the same belief system, only our recipes look completely different or our tactics, if you will. And how does that connect? And what kinds of questions do we need to be asking ourselves to walk back in time and and correct that behavior? So just kind of putting it in, in that perspective, that's one way to sort of get your group to critically think and almost challenge them in a positive sense, so that they could rethink that and understand they all shared a common belief. I love that so much because, yeah, because I think just based on groups that I've seen, it's a lot easier for folks to kind of take accountability and own up to, oh, yes, I called my partner a slut and they'll they'll maybe own that a little bit. But when it gets to something that, you know, maybe involves a lot of violence and like an actual charge or something, then there's a lot of resistance and maybe wanting to distance themselves from that action, from that behavior. And like, oh, I'm not that bad of a guy, you know, like that's the thing that I would see in group, like, oh, I I didn't do that, you know, like this sort of othering. And when you take it away from the physicality of it and you bring it back, like you were saying, Erica, to the belief system and the the pattern of belief that allows you as the male partner to say, I am entitled to sex from my partner or I am owed this or whatever that belief is, when you take it back to your belief system, then the pattern of behavior can be interrupted because you're addressing the belief. And so you kind of, I love that you took took a step back from the behavior because the behavior is important. Like, I don't want to diminish that, but addressing that underlying belief is that common ground, right? That That you're seeing from your participants. So I love that you, as a facilitator, really focused on that. And I think, addressing that those attitudes and beliefs like that's really where we get to the change that we're hoping that bit affects right that that long-standing change and so i'm curious if when we're talking about sexual respect like from a facilitator's perspective and i I imagine that the answer to this question is that it ranges from group to group but do you see a lot of aha moments when it comes to those belief systems do you see a lot of people just having that oh, I learned this from my dad who learned it from his dad. Do you see those beliefs starting to like unfurl and people really starting to like have those puzzle pieces click into place? I have in group or even in intake heard some participants verbalize an aha moment like, wow, I never thought of it like that. Or one participant who I asked a few questions to sort of share or or put the mirror up like, hey, you're sharing a belief system with other men who are marrying children, 
you know, if you're looking for a partner who doesn't have a lot of sexual experience in their past. So I've seen and they verbalize aha moments, but for me as like when I was facilitating or just working with the participant one-on-one, I really did like to see them get upset. Let me explain. So there's no, what, what did she say? Get upset. I wanted to see them uncomfortable and I wanted to see them get kind of like, no, no. All I would do is just ask questions, you know, like, and kind of point it out, put a mirror up, you know, so they, they can't really run from it. And I think that part of BIP work to make them uncomfortable was for me, and this could be just a personal thing, but for me was just real staunch because I knew that they were being challenged and I knew that they were going to go the rest of the day thinking about what was asked of him and what I said, and no, I got to prove her wrong. Maybe he'll read something. I don't know. But it just meant that there was no complacent in group. He didn't just sit there and agree and verbalize that he understood. He was upset. I challenged it as a facilitator, asked questions to challenge it. And maybe, maybe, just maybe they'll walk away kind of thinking about it a little bit more And sometimes they come back and say, wow, I just, it it took me a long time to process that. But yeah, I'm starting to see that. But that's just a bit of an opinion. I think some of those aha moments would begin even at intake when we would do their assessments. And what we used to do at our BIP is a sexual abuse inventory. And it just, it simply lists many of the behaviors of anywhere ranging from treating women as sex objects to the end of we're pressuring or coercing her to have sex with animals, a long, very long list. Depending on what they would share with us at an assessment, sometimes them reading, say, for example, withholding sexual affection as a form of punishment. So what we would do with that information, well, for one, we would look for the patterns and those behaviors. So we would ask them like, okay, well, with this partner, we would use their name at all times. So for example, with Flanch Devereaux. Flanch Devereaux. (laughs) Asking the whys and the hows and even using that time to explore some of their attitudes and beliefs that led them to think that that was okay to use that with their partner. And just starting during assessment, it helped them to know what to expect whenever it came to that theme later on, because we would share, we do spend quite a bit of time on this. As far as other aha moments, my goodness, you would think I would have a whole toolbox full of this. Remember one participant, I don't know if it was the sexual respect theme, but he mentioned recording himself that maybe I should record what I'm going to say to my partner so I can point out any controlling language. And you're like, that was a good idea. And he's like, wow, miss, I never thought of it like that to point out my controlling language. I wonder if that's the, because I kind of remember, I don't know if this is the same one you're talking about, but I do remember one participant sharing and group how for one he was trying to set up the story to make his partner look bad already right he did openly share how he did video record her when she was under the influence he re- he did record her when she was naked and then he showed that to her the next day to throw a lot of things in her face use that to control what he was trying to control her to do in that moment or use that against her that one just kind of stood out right now as soon as you you said that, Erica. It was a different story, but that, that uh, one's pretty powerful. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a good example of, you know, things that some of those tactics that folks can use. But Erica, I love the uh, what you shared about the participant who kind of wanted to practice, right? Because that's the thing about having these deeply ingrained belief systems that are constantly being reinforced by things in society like our media, porn, family, friends, whatever, that, yeah, it takes a lot of practice to undo that. Because I'm, and I'm very curious, like when y'all had conversations about consent, I'm very curious what participants' general attitude about consent was. I can imagine that it ranges, right? (laughs) Like as long as I'm not physically forcing something to happen, then it's a yes, right? I would frequently hear some of that in group that, well, I didn't 
physically force her to do anything, right? But we all know that coercion and threats of abuse and threats of harm are very impactful tools that people who use harm employ when they're in a sexual relationship or can employ. So I'm curious, do y'all have conversations about consent, but out of fear, right? Like maybe their partner's fearful of the repercussions of saying no, or what kind of behaviors the abusive partner is using to get that yes, right? And heavy on the quotations on the yes. Are they pouting, throwing a fit, guilting, or like Audrey, like the story that you shared, threatening with video or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to release this. I'm going to send it to your family. I'm going to put it on social media, like revenge porn type scenario. Yeah. So what kind of conversations about consent were y'all having with participants? One thing that I would do is I would use a big whiteboard, a huge whiteboard, really old fashioned, but like at the same time, using the whiteboard at the very top, I would put consent out of fear in this relationship, Mm -hmm. right? And so it'd get them thinking like, okay, what does that mean? Consent out of fear. You know, a lot of their definitions of what consent is just simply no means no. And then Mm -hmm. we're looking and touching into the coercion piece. Many of the participants didn't even understand the word coercion itself. So we would have a conversation on pressuring somebody to do something they really don't want to do. So what kinds of things would you do or say so that you could get that yes with your partner, right? And so it would range from anywhere from buying her things or spending more quality time with her, you know, being more affectionate with her type stuff. And many of the group members, when it came to the end of the four to five weeks, I do remember many of them admitting like, wow, this was out of fear. When we started helping them make those connections on that past use of violence with their partners that they've used, even with previous partners, like say they were a victim before, like say they had a current partner now, we would always stress on, well, how is your current partner still affected by that past use of violence with the victim? And so having them make those connections, even with their current partners. That makes so much sense, Audrey. And yes, it was super important how Audrey facilitated groups really diving into consent out of fear. I think that was an eye-opening moment because if you, and Samantha, earlier you said like, this really is a societal issue, right? But just kind of, we know in BIP, we're working with the select population that we know will cross the line to establish that power and control. So we know that exploitation to gain sex is super normal. It's super normal. It's rooted in pop culture. And so I think that does go somewhat against their learning at first. That's part of the learning curve is to really dissect. Okay. So this isn't normal, but why is it in every music video? Or this is just the way it is. Men buy dinner on the first date to get sex. And so you have to sort of dig through those beliefs first. And I would advise any facilitator to not ignore going there. Just go there and really understand that that exploitation being so normalized, there's going to be a lot of work to do to untangle some of those initial beliefs because they are coming to group thinking, well, it is normal to get my intimate partner a little tipsy. So she'll say yes, and we can hook up later. You know, that is normal, but in fact, it's not super harmful. And so, yes, like Audrey was saying, I think that's a bit of the learning curve is like to go in there and dive into those initial beliefs so that you can focus on, okay, well, what is, what does sexual respect look like now that we know this is not a normal way to behave. One of the questions that I do remember usually sparking like a really good conversation with the men in the groups is just simply asking them how vulnerable are their mothers, their daughters, their wives are to sexual violence. And it really makes it even really personal for them. And many of them were fathers. They feel like this responsibility to keep their, say their daughters from getting kidnapped or things like that. So I do remember finding that asking group participants that particular question to generate like a discussion. I think these conversations are so important because Erica, like you were saying, yeah, it is a societal issue and it's just this particular demographic that 
we've has been shown to cross the line, right? But like, I see so many like videos on social media of, oh, I'm a nice guy. Why can't I get a girlfriend? And it is just so insidious to me, like this undercurrent of, I got the formula right. I bought the flowers. I paid for dinner on the first date and I was polite. And so therefore the equation should equal out to, she has to have sex with me now because I put in the cheat codes. Like I did the thing. And so now I'm owed this reciprocity because it's transactional, right? And like the intent behind these actions of mine, were not really genuine and just wanting to do like a nice thing for you. It was, I'm trying to get something out of this and you owe me now. And I'm upset that you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain, even though there was never like this agreement, right? And so, yeah, like it feeds into that entitlement, that pressure that we put on men or on relationships that I think, Erica, we had had a conversation previously where you said that a lot of times some of these men were looking at a relationship as like a means to an end, just a way to achieve a constant influx of sex. Like just you're my supply basically. And it's your duty, it's your role, it's your job and requirement to fulfill that for me. And if you don't, then there's a problem. And because I'm owed it and because I'm entitled to it, and especially because we're in a relationship where I have control and power, I'm going to make sure it happens by whatever means I see fit. Again, back to the, it's not a unique scenario to BIP, but it's just, yeah, it's this idea of even something as seemingly innocent, right? As Audrey, when you were giving the examples of participants saying, well, if I want sex, I buy the flowers and I do this and I spend quality time and I do this, but it's putting in the cheat codes, you know, like it's, I'm doing this so that I can get what I want rather than being genuine. Yeah, that makes sense. I I think too, in group, that's another reason we would spend some time really going over the concept of makeup sex for that specific reason. One that, you know, sex is expected in intimate relationships which is an unhealthy belief system that most of the participants had pretty rooted solid across the participants. And then two, the notion of makeup sex with someone who is using physical violence to reinforce power and control. And you hear the stories of participants talking about the makeup sex or the having to prove you still love me through uh, sexual activity. There's a bit of a contrast there because then you kind of have to deep dive and walk them through how do you establish true consent with that past use of violence? And sometimes that past use of violence happened five minutes before the sexual activity. How do you establish true consent? And so being able to challenge them that way. And Audrey, I can popcorn it to you if you have anything additional to talk about that, but that be another important concept like for facilitators to dive into is the notion of makeup sex and how it's sexual coercion and violence in these types of relationships. For one, the makeup sex, many of the men would think like that's the best kind of sex, right? And so in group, getting them to really think about their partner's experience through what's happening right now. And sometimes I would bring in what they're there for, like say for strangulation, they're, they're in bit because they strangled their partner. And sometimes I would get them to think, okay, well, you strangled your partner, right? That's attempted murder, basically, right? Four pounds of pressure to the neck, you could kill them. So what does that look like when it comes to expecting your partner to have sex with you in a bed, intimate space? You know, imagine what that feels like to even sleep next to a person that's tried to kill you at one point. And sometimes that would get them thinking like, oh, shoot, you know, I wouldn't want to lay down next to someone that almost did that to me. And sometimes talking with them about those kinds of things would help them realize, oh, man, what am I doing or what have I done type of moment. That's such an interesting conversation, because I think that really getting someone to try to perceive what someone else might be feeling like this concept of oh well they're still having sex with me so like everything's good as opposed to thinking about that 
sexual act as like a survival mechanism for that person. Like they don't want to upset you or put themselves in a dangerous position if they're doing it out of fear or to maintain the status quo or the peace in the home or whatever, that's not true consent. Like you were saying, Erica, right. It's uh, I'm saying yes, because I don't want you to hurt me. Right. I don't want you to strangle me again. I don't want you to fly off the handle. So. Right. And for many of their partners, it might've been the only moment that they're feeling like some form of affection from their partner. And that's really confusing for the partner itself, like that hope for change, or he's being very loving right now. And it's just very confusing, you know, but at the end of the day, that act solidified the participant's power over their intimate partner. One of the things that I wanted to just bring into the conversation and and feel like this might be the right moment is how often in group you have people saying or trying to use BDSM or rough sex as like a an excuse or as like a cover for some of their like violent sexual behaviors or saying, well, it's not actually disrespectful because this is what turns the, my partner on or something like that. Like, I'd be curious about how you navigate a conversation that ends up in that space. Yeah, that has definitely happened. And in our area with where we had our BIP group, the last time I took stats on it, it was 65% had strangled or somehow suffocated their partner. So those very high statistics of participants in our program who had done this. And a few of the the justifications there was that it, it was rough sex, but it was rough sex that their partner had consented to being strangled. And so... Usually, I personally would try to shut that down during intake because that's during the assessment, that one-on-one, because that's where they were most wordy. They wanted, this is the first time that they're going to be able to tell me their side of the story because, you know, they've gone through court, they've gone through law enforcement, they haven't been able to tell their story. And so they're coming in and justifying it in that way. And I try to shut it down by asking some pretty taboo questions, I guess, because I would ask them, okay, well then I'm flipping the script and I'm like, okay, well walk me through how you got consent to strangle your partner during sex. Walk me through it step-by-step. Did y'all have a safe word? I've gotten training on BSDM community and I've gotten training on like their ethics, their codes, people who have been in that community for years. And I would recommend any facilitator to get training. So it's very enlightening to help you hold participants and BIP accountable when they do try to use that as a justification. But I think an intake is a really good time to set that expectation that that's just not going to fly. You can't prove that you had consent because their stories really are built on shaky ground. And once you start asking them to walk you through how they got consent, it falls apart pretty quick. And another thing that I know as a professional is the Texas defense laws. I know that someone cannot consent to their serious bodily injury. It's not an allowable defense, only in certain circumstances. So I know that as a professional, not saying that does me any good by repeating it back to a participant, but because I know that as a professional, I'm not going to be sucked in and help collude with that participant by validating in any sense or any bit that that is is potentially true. I do know that there is a community that has their kinks and that's totally respectable, but that is with actual consent, true consent. And I know that an intimate partner who's been physically abused cannot give true consent. And I also know that they're not likely to get on the stand and air out their kinkiness in front of a whole bunch of spectators either. And so I think that's really important for a facilitator to sort of understand so that you can ask those challenging questions. What did consent look like when your partner said they they wanted you to strangle them? Walk me through step by step and and shut it down during intake if you can, so that that doesn't come up in group in front of 10 other participants where it can go awry. Yeah, I think that that's so important, Erica, that walk me through how you know you got consent and like 
I think a bit facilitator, I don't know how many bit facilitators get training in BDSM. So I also think that that's really cool. But being able to say like, did you have a safe word? Did you have the appropriate like safety measures in place? Because there is a specific culture around like actual BDSM kinks and fetishes. And so I think being able to really distinguish that and say like, you don't get to use this community. You don't get to use this like popular concept of rough sex as an excuse for your abusive behaviors. So I really appreciate you being willing to take the conversation there, to do that work, to be informed as a facilitator. I think that that's really important. So, Yeah, especially because, I mean, strangulation, and I know that that's only one part of like this rough sex discussion, but strangulation is such a huge lethality factor that, I mean, I, I think it's so important to confront and to challenge on that. Because it's just, it's linked so highly with lethality. And so, but speaking of, that makes me think of the concept of jealousy. And I'm curious if that's a topic y'all covered in group, because I think we also see in our homicide research that there's a lot of instances where it's this double standard, right, of the male partner who is using abuse within the relationship can be as sexually available to as many people as he wants. But the minute that his female partner has any autonomous sexual identity apart from him or the perception of sexual availability towards other men is just like such a risk factor for lethality, it seems. And so I'm curious if the topic of jealousy, specifically like sexual jealousy, ever was covered in group. Yeah, for sure. Definitely the jealousy piece would come up during the intake and in group. When it came to talking about jealousy with them, some of the things that we would talk about when it comes to expectations of of women, expectations of a girlfriend, what are their expectations of what a wife should be, right? What I've noticed is that like the jealousy piece, they would share, oh, I I didn't used to be like this when we're dating, but now we're in this two, three-year relationship, things have changed. And and then we we dive into like what that looked like for them when it came to those underlying beliefs about or an expectations of their partner. And I think a lot of folks perceive and when we when we work with young people, we we often hear this. So and I imagine that this belief transcends age, but that jealousy is actually perceived often as like a healthy marker in a relationship. It, it means that I care. So how do you like flip that script in a bit group when you're like, well, why are you jealous though? This is where the control log, and we use dilute. So. But this is where the control log comes in really handy because their intent was to show that they care by being jealous, but their action was ripping a phone out of her hand, slamming it on the ground, and then slapping her in the face. Where's the disconnect, right? What did you want to happen? What was your intent? What actually happened? Who was affected? How did your past use of violence play into this moment? And what could you have done differently that matched your intent of showing that you care? And so I think that when those types of contradictions come up, if you use Duluth, bust out that control log and paint it and use the whiteboard like Audrey did, because then they can't run away from their words like Audrey mentioned earlier. So. I was just going to say, ooh, because there's nowhere to hide in that, right? Like when you break it down like that, there's no room to say, I hit you because I care. I strangled you because I love you. I did this because when you're breaking it down like that, yeah, there's not a lot of room to run and hide. It's a lot of in your face accountability and having to, because you have to name it, right? Like you have to name it, you have to say it. It's a good example of why, how you choose your curriculum is important, right? (laughs) And knowing the tools that you have within your curriculum is also important. But yeah, I mean, I just, there's lots of great curricula out there. And I think that's an area where prevention has like kind of a crossover is understanding that's something that prevention educators can probably take a lesson in and and see what are 
BIP groups? What are BIP facilitators talking about? What are these topics? Where, where can we learn and pull from the kinds of content that we're needing to provide to this group? And if our whole role is prevention, right, and we're hoping to prevent that act of abuse or the act of harm, then we're going to want to incorporate some of that content and some of those concepts into our prevention work, right? Like there's there's room for some collaboration there, I think. So that if, because I mean, if it's one thing that I heard, probably the thing I heard most in BIP groups was, I just wish I knew some of this sooner, right? Like I just wish somebody had told me about this. So it makes sense that we could probably have some room for collaboration and, and some prevention work to kind of see what can we mirror, what can we pull that makes sense, that's, you know, age appropriate and adjusted as makes sense. But there's lots of things that I'm sure you all have learned as BIT facilitators where you see glaring, flashing signs as some room for prevention. So I'm curious, do you have any of those insights that you can share with us? Things that you're hearing in BIP group or things that you're seeing that you were like, man, this would be a perfect entry point for prevention. Yeah. At my program, I was really privileged to have a team. I I had a team of eight and it was BIP and primary prevention. So I had preventioners and BIP facilitators within the team. And I often, often put them in the same team meetings and we would talk prevention And I think you're right, Samantha, there's a lot of collab to be done there. And there's a lot of useful tools because in a sense, you're doing the same thing. You're trying to change a lot of attitudes and beliefs. Preventioners are trying to do it with youth because they're really trying to stop that first time perpetration. BIP's trying to do it in an intervention prevention sense. We're trying to break a generational cycle because oftentimes this type of violence is generational. So y'all both have, or prevention and BIP have the same goal and the same tools could be useful for both. You're really working on those attitudes and beliefs. And so I think a good head start is to really think about any BIP facilitator professional who's working with participants should really know those preventional foundational tools, the social ecological model. Learn what the risk factors and prevention factors are on an individual relationship, community, and societal level. Really understand them because that's going to come at you full force with a participant who, like William mentioned earlier, is going to be like, but everybody gets jealous. This is normal. You will know it, it's, it's not because it fueled this violent action that you took against someone that you, you love. So that would be like the start, I would say is to really collaborate on those tools and be knowledgeable about them. And don't be afraid to go there to really talk about these societal beliefs because your BIP participants are coming into your group with them. That's what they're bringing with them to group. And and there's going to be a lot of deep diving to go go on in there. And it'll help you stop colluding too, just in case. You won't collude or validate or say things like, you're right, I get jealous when... And then... I was going to say you're not passing an audit, but I guess we could. <laughs> I remember I mean, those. <laughs> I remember those meetings like that. Erica would like she would have the educators, and then she'd bring in BIP. And every time I would meet with them, I always learned something different. I'm still learning. Like now, what I really loved about that space is just being vulnerable with the educators, talking about like, okay, th- these are some of the things that participants are seeing in group. What are y'all's thoughts on how I can bring some of that prevention piece into my BIP groups? You know, because I would get stuck sometimes, obviously. (laughs) I would get stuck sometimes, even in group, of not knowing. I would really encourage educators doing collab work with BIP facilitators. If, If you have the resources to do so, it's definitely worth it. Yeah. And I can imagine like this specific topic being really difficult to get educators to feel like they have, like they are empowered to go into schools and talk about this, because especially in the light of SB9 and changes regarding that, it's already really difficult just to even get in front of students sometimes. And so there can be a lot of limitations placed on educators 
specifically about sexual respect, but some of the themes that we talked about today, even how to accept rejection, like how to accept a no, not even in the context of sex, just like in any sort of relationship and friendship, how attitudes about relationships and roles and expectations, like expectations within a relationship and what happens if there's a disconnect between you and your partner's idea of expectations in a relationship and how you navigate that. And so I think there's still a lot of foundational work that can be done to address sexual respect without necessarily touching on sex and sexual behavior. And so you just kind of have to be a little creative. <laughs> yeah. And and a lot of prevention educators aren't going into schools. No. They're, they find themselves in other settings, mm-hmm. often in front of adult populations. And so to, to, to your point from the very beginning of the episode, Samantha, around this conversation doesn't just need to happen in BIP groups. Like these are things that we see with other people. And so being able, being equipped to have that conversation in any setting, even if it's not a professional setting and you're trying to process your own personal family history trauma, or you're like dealing with your friends and you you know, you're calling out jokes about rape culture or you're calling, you know, being able to do those in social settings. And even if you're not an educator, being able to call those things out and understand that really it comes down to equity and sexual respect. And like, that's why like rape jokes aren't funny, right? Is because it's this underlying attitude and belief that this is okay, right? So even if you're if you believe that you're like truly joking, when you put that joke out there in the world, people around you that affirms their belief often or says like, oh, we can laugh at at sexual assault to your point about like that partnership being in those spaces with BIP educators and BIP facilitators and prevention educators. It also goes to the thing that we've talked about before on the podcast and we talk about all the time is that like our paradigm like currently is to teach still, I think it's shifting some, but it's still still to teach the prevention of victimization. And really, we should be shifting that to teaching the prevention of perpetration, being able to really get in there with people who are working with people who use violence and say, how, what have you seen to be effective in learning from BIP facilitators is like critical to the rest of us understanding how do we start to shift to teach the prevention of perpetration as opposed to just doing harm reduction with people to prevent victimization, which is still important. But if people are out there perpetrating, then there will be people who are victimized. You can't put the onus of stopping intimate partner violence or gender-based violence on the people being impacted by the violence, right? This has been a great conversation. One other thing that I just wanted to note right here towards the end was that throughout this episode, we really talked about the dynamic of a male perpetrator and a female victim, because that's the way a lot of the BIP groups are set up. There are four male perpetrators of violence against female victims. And just acknowledging that the dynamics that we've talked about persist through any gender dynamic in a relationship, regardless of the gender of the perpetrator or the victim, this conversation about sexual respect still holds. While that may be the standard dynamic that we talk about often in our movement, because that is the majority of the cases that we see and the way that curricula and groups are structured. We understand that even if the two people in the abusive relationship are of the same gender, that often these attitudes and beliefs about gender roles and sexual respect or disrespect for that matter persist. And so just wanted to acknowledge that as well. A few things that were mentioned throughout this episode, the Duluth curriculum, for example, we will link in the episode description. So if you want to check out those resources that we talked about, we'll do that. And of course, you can always email us if you have any questions or concerns about this episode. So Erica, Audrey, thank you for being here. This was a great conversation. We really appreciate all the work that you do on the Family Violence Services team. And we also acknowledge the often underappreciation that uh, BIT facilitators often get in our movement. And so the fact that both of you have been facilitators and are still active in like BIP work is really incredible. So I want to thank you both for being here and for the work that you do. Thank you.
Yes, thank you for having us. Just another reminder that it is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So please support your local sexual assault programs and think about the ways that you can show your support for survivors this month. Wear your teal and really be active in thinking about your role, your 15% in addressing sexual assault in our society. Mm -hmm.